I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hey, Karen. How are you? How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Jinx. At least it wasn't at the same time this time. So Very close. We're, we're getting Very better close. at it. Maybe. Yeah. How are you today? I am pretty good today. I It's Saturday today, so I just played video games all day until we decided to do the podcast, so it was relaxing. This week was yay a crazy time in California legislature, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, this week was a lot more sane for me, and good. I feel more rested this time. It's good. Yay. Well, we have a friend. Yeah, we have a friend. Hi. Emily. <sighs> Hello, it's so good to be here. It's me, Emily Vanderwerf, uh, and I'm going to make sure that my microphone is picking up my voice. It is. Yay. Yay. Wow, technology. This is what we love to see on a podcast. We're so glad you can be here. I am so glad to be here. Uh, I, I really love this podcast. Uh, I haven't listened to all the episodes, but I've listened to most of them. And um, uh, Eve, as I've told you numerous times, I'm a huge fan of your writing. So. Oh, I'm flattered. Well, tell our listeners a little bit about you if they are not familiar with your writing. Uh, I'm Emily Vanderwerf. I'm the critic at large at Vox. I write about movies and television primarily, but also just other stuff. I also write about trans issues because I'm a trans woman. And I am the co-creator of the fiction podcast Arden, which is now entering its second season, which I am endlessly plugging because I think it's a good show. Uh, I also am the co-author of the book Monsters of the Week, the complete critical companion to the X-Files. I have like 52... (laughs) I love it. I have like 52 things to plug. And at the end of the podcast, I will plug all of them because... Yeah, we'll we'll do do it properly, but... I feel like that's a, that's good enough. Why are you interested in, in talking with us um, on our podcast? What's your, your connection to evangelicalism? I grew up evangelical. I went to a church in Platte, South Dakota called Living Word Fellowship for much of my childhood. It was, uh, I've talked about this on the, the podcast, um, Good Christian Fun. I've given the unexpurgated version, but I will, <laughs> I will do just a quick version now and then we can dig into whatever we want to. But I uh, was there as from probably when I was about four to when I was about 12, very formative years. And then we left because my parents were very... Um, concerned about uh, the direction the church was taking. The new They hired a new pastor my parents weren't fond of. So we went to a Baptist church instead, mainline Baptist rather than uh, Southern Baptist. And eventually we ended up UCC. And when I say that, people are like, whoa, that's a really liberal church. And um, <laughs> for the area, it was like for the area, it was a church where like they were saying, listen, did your teenagers have sex? Maybe don't kick them out of the house. But like, they, wow. they, yeah, they still were like, uh, what a grave sin. What a horrible thing that your teenager has done. So I'm sorry, that's still endorsement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, for the area, though, it was considered very progressive. And like, mm-hmm. it was very strange to be uh, attending this church that like, my grandparents went there. So I'd been there several times, but... It was it was kind of a jarring shift to go from a church where it was basically like, you know, the end times are right around the corner. And literally within a couple of years, we ended up at a church where the pastor was uh, he had 
uh, he had like a, a, a kind of a shady past and he'd come to being a mm-hmm. pastor uh, later in life. And like there were questions around how proprietous his relationship was with his fiance. <laughs> wow. just like, yeah, there was all just like this of course. stuff surrounding his life and he was like a really good guy he was he was one of the people who sort of kept me nominally nominally in the church which i Hmm. still am like i saw his example and was like oh this is not just for people who are throwing themselves against you know this burden of masculinity because i i grew up Mm -hmm. in that era of promise keepers and you know uh uh, jesus like muscle bound jesus and all of that Uh, were you um, were you in that church during Y2K? Uh, no. By the time of Y2K, I was in college. So okay. Um, I was uh, I was by college. I kind of had let religion slide, and now I'm weirdly since I came out as trans, I've become more involved in faith. I've be, like become more in touch with how important it is to me, how important it was to me growing up. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, for a lot of my twenties, I was I said I was Christian. I went to church on Christmas and Easter or when my parents were in town, but I did not make an effort to be a part of a faith community in a way gotcha. that I have since I came out. So, Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, I feel like that's enough of an overview. We did it. <laughs> we Yay. did it. That's everything anyone ever needs to know about. <laughs> well, that's, that's enough to get us to dive us into this, this like this topic that we've got. So the reason I asked Emily to join us today is because she did this amazing Twitter thread that we'll link to in the show notes um, about how her evangelical past kept her from realizing she was trans mm. mm-hmm. in a way you wouldn't expect. Would you mind going into that a little bit? Yeah. So I grew up being taught to look for signs from God, for God to be like, you know, putting the flaming arrow over the door I was supposed to be going through. And <laughs> right. I never, you know, it, it was pretty rare to see those signs. And I did a Twitter thread about two times in my life when I feel like I've seen a sign from God. Um, and the first time is not really relevant to this story, so I'm, I'm not going to bring it up because it would just be a, a tangent. But the second time was I uh, grew up I'm adopted. We're just going to play identity bingo with me because I have all these identities. (laughs) I'm adopted and my biological father died before I could meet him. Um, I have since met his kids. I've met his uh, ex-wife. I've met uh, met most of his family members. I've met everybody who was connected to him. And like Mm – after he died, I wrote to, I found out about it from his obituary. I wrote to his parents and they sent me like photos of him. And I was like, oh, wow. And he, he looked, he looked like a skinny version of my old masculine self. Um, and like old, uh, there's a lot of things that sort of go into this. But when I, before I came out, I was very like, I did not care about my body. So I, I overate. I was, I was significantly overweight. I was and he died of a rare heart condition. So in the back of my brain, I was always like, I got to get my weight under control because my biological father was in super good shape and he had this heart thing that just went, that exploded when he was 48. And the closer I got, you know, the further I got into my 30s, the more I could see 40 looming around the corner. I was like, got to get in shape, got to get in shape, got to get in shape. Um, <laughs> because this heart condition was hanging over my head. Mm-hmm. So 
around the same time as when I met his kids finally, I started going to my own therapy because I knew there was a lot of stuff going on in my brain that I just like needed to deal with. And the therapist looked exactly like my dad. Like when I walked in the door, I just was like, oh, what is happening right now? This is so strange. Mm -hmm. It... This is not really the sign from God. This felt like a plot device in a bad novel is what it felt like. <laughs> that like I had this this unresolved thing in my life and then here was the guy who was supposed to help me put my life together and he looked exactly like the unresolved thing in my life. <laughs> so for most of my therapy with this guy and I was off and on with him. I would leave and come back and leave and come back we kind of danced around the gender thing. And I just to be like, you know, I think a lot about how much better it would be to be a woman or how much easier it would be to be a woman. And he would be like, I don't know many women who would say that, but okay. And, <laughs> and, and I was just like, yeah, but you know, I just like, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm better built for womanhood in a weird way. And like, I never made the leap. Like in some part of my brain, I knew I was trans, but I couldn't force myself to say it. And then in 2015, Vox Media, where I work, d- adopted an incredibly trans-friendly healthcare plan. And yeah, it's so great. I saw people in the, uh, you know, in the various offices of Vox Media, people who were clearly transitioning and just seemed to be really happy. And something in my brain clicked and was like, you can do this. You can be mm-hmm. yep. the woman you are. You have the resources. You don't have anything to be afraid of anymore. Because for a long time, I was very financially dependent on my parents. Like, um, I certainly was was doing, you know, I certainly was drawing a salary and stuff. But I don't know if you know this, but journalism is not a hugely well-paying industry. What? (laughs) Shocking. So when I was at the AV Club, and especially, like, my wife lost her job in the recession. So especially after that, I was just like, we were a one-income family. It was pretty uh, dire straits there for a while. But when I got to Vox Media... I got a nice little raise. This healthcare plan was there. I was like, you know what? I can do this. This is the thing I can do. So in spring 2015, I go to my therapist's office and I'm like, I'm going to tell him first. I'm going to say, I'm trans. I want to transition. And I'd like you to start calling me. Uh, actually, I didn't have I didn't have the name picked out at the time. The name would come later. Mm-hmm. The name would come later. Anyway, uh, I went to his office and there was a sign on the door that said uh insert name of my therapist is not seeing patients today due to a health crisis and instantly i just i crumbled i just was like sad and i started crying because i had worked up the strength to do the thing i knew i needed to do but i had never i hadn't gotten to the point where uh, I got to do it. If I had gone into his office that day, I would have said it. I know I would have Mm -hmm. said it. And that was three years before I actually came out. I went down to the beach. I went down to the ocean, uh, which he he works in Long Beach, California. So I went down Mm -hmm. to the ocean, which was not far from his office. I walked down there. I walked down to the dog beach in Long Beach, which is one of my favorite places in the world. Yes, it's the best. And I was just (laughs) sitting there like at the edge of the water and just like the dogs were running around me and I was like, I should just walk out into the water. Nobody would miss me. And like, I almost put a content warning there, but also like 
just wandering out into the ocean is not, you know. <laughs> also, we talk about Failing. a lot more yeah. intense things on this podcast regularly. Okay. I feel like our listeners like have consented to be vaguely triggered if they're listening to this at I've, all. So I've, I've, sorry, guys. I've listened to the show. I figured, but <laughs> wanted to be clear. At, at, at a certain point, we like gave up on not swearing because everything else was so dark. Yeah. yeah, we started off with good intentions, and then no. Yeah, no, we just lost it. Anyway, this was not. Uh, what I'm trying to convey is that if I wanted to end my life, this was not a particularly well thought out plan. It was just the one I had in front of me was like I could walk out into the Pacific Ocean and nobody would miss me, which of course is untrue. Lots of people would have missed me. But what happened then was I got this message on my phone from one of the people who worked under me at Vox and she needed an edit. So I sat there and did the edit on my phone. And in the time that I did that, I successfully put away the suicidal thoughts, but I also successfully put away the part of me that was like ready to come out. And like I reboxed it all up and I was like, okay, whatever, that's fine. A few weeks later, I get a call from one of my therapist colleagues and he says, so what happened was your therapist had a heart attack uh, and it was from the exact same heart condition my father had. So the man who looked (laughs) like my father to the degree that he felt like uh, he felt like a, a figure in a novel had the same heart condition as my father directly on the day when I was going to come out to him as trans. And I was not really a believer at this point. I was agnostic at best. But I remember I just broke down and I was like, all right, God, you win. Transitioning is for some people. It is not for me. And like, I felt so defeated in that moment. And I felt like if ever you wanted a sign from God, this felt like a sign from God. And I, I, I think you both can sort of recognize why it felt yep. like that. Oh, yeah. Well, and this is this is actually total sidebar for a second, but this no, is one worries. of the reasons why I like playing with astrology Okay, is because I'm able to chalk up those kinds of coincidences now to something larger than me, but not something that is intentionally trying to thwart me. I, for a long time in my life, before I came out, uh, believed I was a character in a television show. Not like seriously, just like in the sense of I would be like, oh, the writers are up to it now. It was like, yeah, it was like yeah. security yep. blanket. I, I, Kieran and I have talked many times about how our lives are more interesting than soap operas. On yeah, it's been weird. Yeah. but it's yes, I, I understand that. Um, so I I gave up and and was just like, I'm never coming out. I'm gonna be in the closet my whole life. Obviously, I'm speaking to you now as Emily Vanderwerf, established trans woman. And <laughs> what happened was I kept going to therapy. He came back. His heart was fine. He got, a, he got a new lease on life. I got a new lease on life. He bought a new house. He got a new boyfriend. I found out he was gay 10 years into our therapy together. Like, <laughs> Amazing. And, Love it. And yeah, I, the way that I sort of put it in, in, in the Twitter thread was, you know, he got to live, but I got to live too. And like, Mm -hmm. for as much as I still tell that story and I'm like, oh, wow, God was really trying to tell me something like, it's also just a weird coincidence. It's just a dumb thing that happened. And I wasn't sure how to process it. And that's okay. I don't have to know how to process it. It can be a thing that happened to me that was weird. And I can... I can, you know, find a way to live with it. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, that uh, 
that 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 hit me for a while but if i look back at the journey of coming to terms with being trans that that spring of 2015 when i was ready to come out that was the start of a journey like that fall 2015 is when i was talking with some friends about the actress emily blunt and i was like <laughs> in the back of my brain i was like i've always loved the name emily i've always wanted to have a daughter named emily every time like i played the sims i would have characters named emily you know I'd just be like the name emily comes up all through my life but i'm a right like i'm a screenwriter and I've never named a character Emily. I've just been instinctively, nope, there are no characters in this name, Emily. <laughs> and like, I was like, I wonder what that's all about. And this voice in the back of my head that I, you know, never listened to was like, it's your name, you idiot. And I was like, oh. <laughs> that's, how, that's actually very similar to how the name Eve came to be for me. Interesting. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was an earworm for like two months. And I was just like, why can I not stop thinking about this and seeing it everywhere? And 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 it was like I had been looking actively looking for a replacement name for about a year and a half yeah I mean a lot a lot longer I'd always use pseudonyms and 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 avoided using my real name but um yeah Eve came to me in a very similar fashion yeah and um that that was that fall and then you know the next year 2016 uh, I started writing this TV pilot that has been like the thing I've had the most success with. And the protagonist of it was a 13 year old girl and thinking like a 13 year old girl helped some of this stuff start to move. And like, yeah, it really is for as much as my therapist, like not being there that day. Okay. Let's take a look at this in terms of it being a sign from God. Let's take a look mm-hmm. at this in terms of it being like a part of God's grand design, because there's another way you can sell it, which is, <laughs> My wife, the love of my life, was not yet to terms with her own bisexuality at that point. If I had oh, if I had come out yeah. as a woman in 2015, she would have been like, I don't know if we can make this happen. She would have been on my side. We would have stayed friends, but like our marriage wouldn't have survived mm-hmm. like it had. But she wouldn't have been like, cool, I'm into women. This is going to be fine. Yeah, in the way that she was in 2018. And like obviously there mm-hmm. have been other issues and struggles, but... Yeah, it maybe there's there's a world in which if I'm trying to argue that God did this for me, maybe he did it to make sure I didn't do it at a point when my wife wasn't ready to accept me because having her at my side in the coming out process was by far the most valuable thing of all. Like there are other ways to think about it, but I think the way you should think about it is it was a weird thing that happened. It was a weird coincidence and thank God I'm here. Mhm. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's so interesting, like all the ways you can spin these coincidences, yeah, and these these little moments. And I think like learning to not actively like read into everything has been one of the like more healing parts of like leaving that world because it allowed me to stop feeding like a lot of my anxiety. Yeah. Yes. It reduces so much, like, existential panic. Yeah, it's weird how not having to interpret any single event in your life through some kind of, like, oh, is God telling me to do this lens yeah. takes a lot of, like, it pressure also, off. Like, it also just, like, puts you in a place of, like, I am, like, this tiny life that is, like, a speck in time in this ginormous universe and like let's go all like cosmos on it but like 
putting all of that in perspective and being like, what are the odds that God is like intentionally intervening when like there's all this other stuff? Yeah. It yeah. makes me feel like I, one of the things that happened with like my move to LA, we were talking about this before we started recording um, in 2013 after my divorce was I was asking friends like, is this the right thing? And I was scrambling because I didn't have like a sign from God that this was like the right decision. And I didn't have like a job there and I didn't have any like reason to go there besides I just wanted it. And like, that was something that made it suspect because like your emotions are supposed to be like signs of like sinful desires. So you can't trust them. So I spent weeks agonizing about this and somebody eventually just like sat me down and was like, there is no wrong choice. Yeah. And I was like, oh, right. I'm not that important. This is fine. I can't, yeah. if, if it doesn't work, I can move back. Like, I will figure it out. And that's been really liberating because that's been my, my whole way of processing all of these tra- like big life transitions ever since. It's like, like, if I want it, that's a good enough of a reason. And also, it's not, there's no right choice in most of these situations yeah which is huge (laughs) that's powerful um i'm talking this is this is my church lady voice what a powerful story you've just shared with us (laughs) (laughs) i literally didn't know what else to say i just like yeah no like yeah that that like the idea that you have control over your own life is the thing i'm still getting used to um, oh, it's fucking terrible. Yeah, that, that I am the one. I am the one who's made my life, and it's an interesting intersection of the fundamentalist identity and the um, pre-coming out trans identity. What we call an egg uh, in in <laughs> trans yes. circles. Like when I was an egg, when I when I firmly was trying to convince myself I was a cisgender man and not the trans woman fireball that I am. I, you know, I really felt like, I don't know, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I also was just kind of like, well, if I'm going to be a writer, somebody will just hand me a writing job. The problem was that happened. People kept handing me writing jobs (laughs) because I was, I was, I was a pretty, like I was a good writer, but I was also a uh, seemingly cisgender straight white man living in America. And people were like, do you want a writing job? And I was like, okay, sure worked for me i could talk about this with you for hours yes (laughs) um and like you know i i don't want to i don't want to besmirch my own talent because i I think i have plenty of it but certainly like but when it came time to a thing that was a little bit more exclusive which is i'd always wanted to write for television when it came time Mm -hmm. to that i was not capable of standing up and saying i want to write for television in the way that i am now that like my brain is you know better calibrated um because uh i didn't Ironically, now that I've given up all this societal power, I know how to ask for the societal power I want back. Well, because you had to learn to ask for what you wanted. And in the previous version of your life, life happened to you. Yes. You did not happen to your life. And I think that's one of the things that we've all had to learn in different ways. Um, Where like people talk about this like with victim mindset, victim mentality stuff a lot, where it's like, are you a survivor? Are you a victim? Like, I think it's perfectly appropriate for people who have experienced trauma to 
or or some sort of really intense difficult life transition yeah. to you know use either term in whichever they're more comfortable with but the reason people often use survivor rather than victim is because okay like this happened to me but i also happened to it and i yeah i'm so much more like strong because of it and that's like such a fucking cliche but there is some truth to it yeah it's really um that thing you said about uh you you happening to your life like i do think a lot about how um yeah i do think a lot about how much i was taught as a child to just let go and sort of throw yourself into the stream that was life and just like let you know god's plan quote unquote take you where it wanted yeah. to but at the same time like i grew up um my parents my parents were not like the one percent of the one percent but they were very well off farmers in an area where there weren't a lot of very well off farmers so we were rich for the area and mm -hmm. like me throwing myself into the stream of just doing you know whatever whatever i thought was right was so much about just like they had the money to bear me up and i was like a little white kid like i like i wasn't going to be like that we grew up, I grew up right next to a Native American reservation and like the folks who live there, if they just like threw themselves into the stream of life, life was going to like, you know, sort of spit them back out. I had structural mm. advantages in terms of being successful that I see now. But at the time I was like, yeah, I guess I just am going to keep doing this because it seems to be working. And like, I do think that's a big part of the reason I, I didn't, I didn't figure out the transness for a long time because, um, well, A, I, was, I grew up in a church that would not have mentioned to me transgender identities existed in a time when pop right. culture was not talking about that. Right, right. But also, Representation makes a big difference in that. Yeah, but also, you know, I just was like, things seemed to be going okay. I didn't want to mess up the flow. So, yeah. So on the other end of this experience would be, I think, a good time for Kieran to talk about yeah. how this influenced their family. <laughs> yeah, my parents like were also very much of the like, well, if it's supposed if it's God's will, then whatever it is will just happen to you and you will not have to do any work. But at the same time, they were of the mindset that like the choices that you had and the way that you would like tell if they were from God or not were based on like how convicted you were. And we all know that like conviction is not like the happy feeling. It's the like <laughs> stressed out feeling. And so the more of the like stressed out feeling my parents had, the more convicted they were. Which quick pause. I've been reading this book that's like the like perfect antidote to that. And it's called Pleasure Activism. And we can talk about it at another point. But like I want my listeners to like know that that exists because it's really good yeah yeah okay, so sorry. they basically like every like they looked for for signs like every good uh evangelical fundamentalist christian does from god about what they should do um especially financially and any like big life choices and they like, I recently talked about this in therapy, actually. Like, literally this week, I was talking about it in therapy, and I had this realization that my parents' interpretation of the Bible is really fucked up, which, like, is wait, news wait, to like, nobody. Like, during this podcast for two years, that you haven't figured that out. <laughs> it's news to nobody, but I was, like, reading... 
So I'm working on writing about this because it's been one of those things that I'm learning has impacted my ability to like be present in my own life and my ability to like survive and get work and do things because so much I have so much baggage from their mentality and their interpretation of signs that like whenever anything good happens to me or whenever I choose to do anything that feels right and like is in line with myself I start panicking because I feel like I'm sinning and like the next shoe is going to drop to like punish yeah. me for making yeah, this decision yeah, yeah. exactly and and so it's terrifying and it's it's cripplingly terrifying in fact yeah. which is why I have therapist <laughs> yay <laughs> yeah and and so what they would do is they would they would well I'll just tell this story and I, I've I've talked about it a couple times before I think um but the most like impactful example I have of this is when I was 10 and this was 2001 my parents were like a lot a lot of things happened um, but my parents at some point decided that it was God had put it on their heart to pay the mortgage of a friend of ours who was a single mother who was able to buy a home um, for the first time. And my parents were like, yay, because apparently homeschooling moms shouldn't be living in apartments. I don't know what the fuck that's about. <laughs> but okay. anyway, yeah, they, they had this weird like anti-apartment prejudice and were happy that um, this friend was getting a home. And they were like, well, God has placed it on our heart to pay for your mortgage. And so unbeknownst to her, I believe, I don't think she knew that my parents were doing this. And so she just like magically had her house paid off super fast. Um, mm hmm but my parents were paying her mortgage and our mortgage. And at some point, like, my parents weren't able to do that anymore. Um, they weren't financially able to pay both her mortgage and our mortgage. And instead of, you know, like, normal people being like, well, we'll just work on paying our mortgage so we have a place to live since she's obviously capable of paying her mortgage on her own. Um, <laughs> my parents were like, well, we'll stop paying our mortgage oh, because God, God has put, put it on our heart to continue paying her mortgage after we've prayed about it instead of paying our mortgage. And we're going to have to trust God to provide for our mortgage. And so the year of like 2002, Foreclosure proceedings started happening. Yeah, because we moved out when I was like close. It was almost I was almost twelve, so oh they God. they started paying this person's mortgage in like the end of two thousand one, two thousand two. They stopped paying our mortgage, and foreclosure proceedings happened. And then in the beginning of two thousand three, we were literally on the verge of homelessness because my parents refused to believe or acknowledge that paying their mortgage was also acceptable according to God <laughs> and that God would magically provide a way for them to stay in their home by like dropping the $20,000 or whatever it was that they owed oh on their laps wow. and that didn't happen so clearly we were still doing the right thing because we were suffering and, oh, yeah, and yeah. my parents like took first Peter Literally, like First Peter 
for our listeners, um, the way I I like to describe it is this dude is really depressed and he's writing letters to his friends in different cities. And instead of like understanding he's depressed and should like maybe do something to get out of like his depression, like talk to a therapist or whatever you have in Bible times. Like he was just like, I am miserable and that means it's holy. And so you should be miserable because that will make you holy. And my parents were like, yes, we are miserable. And so therefore it is holy. And therefore the choices that God is giving us between joy and sadness, I mean, we should choose joy. We should choose sadness because we should be joyful in our suffering. And so obviously oh that's, that's the decision. So All the apostles really just needed to do more mushrooms. They really, they really should have done that instead, and they would have fucked up less people's lives. Oh my god! Yeah, so like that's that's sort of like how my parents interpreted signs from God was they'd go with like the thing that stressed them out the most and decided that was God's voice, and then they would follow that. So like two weeks, like my birthday's end of February, and like. We were, it was like over 4-H fair season. So like three weeks before my birthday, we were supposed to be out of the house. We didn't have anywhere we were going. Like my parents were putting stuff in a storage unit. We were going to stay at my grandparents. So my parents like did some hunting and then the rest was unknown. I was imagining trying to care for all my siblings on the street. Um, and then my grandparents like pulled some strings or something and got us the place next door, probably by like co-signing the lease or something. But mm-hmm. I was young, so I didn't know what that meant. And and then of course God got the credit for that. It was like, see, God provided us a place to live. Not that my parent, like grandparents, didn't want <laughs> right, their grandchildren grandparents being in. homeless. But whatever, sure, that was God. So that was like how my entire concept of life is framed really, mm-hmm. is that, like, choosing suffering is the right choice always. And so if there is ever an opportunity to choose something that would make you happy and is in line with, like, you and, like, what you feel like you need to do, that's wrong. You should you right. should always, always choose the suffering because because anything that's easy to do that wouldn't just land on your lap is obviously the devil trying to trick you. Well, and you're because your emotions are suspect and not right. to be trusted. Right. Your things that you take pleasure in are likely to be sinful. Right, exactly. It's well, so because weird. like the lust of the flesh and stuff. So obviously right. like wanting a home is a uh fleshful lust. So <laughs> So this this like connects to like my experiences because my parents moved us from California to Virginia in 2000. Um, So when I was 12, going on 13, right in there. What part of California Uh, did you grow up in? Visalia. Okay, great. So I was born in San Francisco Mm -hmm. and then we moved to Visalia when I was like three. Okay. And so I lived there for nine years and then we moved to Richmond. And the reason was, like, the whole story leading up to it was my parents were in this evangelical, non-denominational church. They felt it was too liberal, a little like what you were describing, Emily. All A lot of the people who attended it were public school teachers, and we were the only homeschool family. And so we, my parents, like, 
because both of them had undiagnosed and untreated anxiety, constantly imagined that everybody around them was judging them for homeschooling. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Obviously. They're thinking about that. You know, in reality, like, I was, like, kind of a scamp, but, like, everybody else was pretty well behaved. And even though I was a scamp, I was also, like, you know, immediate total recall the moment my father said jump. So, whatever. They were imagining things. And, but they also, you know, they're kind of loose, you know, wonderful, nerdy people, but they're not, like, socially equipped to, like, make friends in that kind of situation. So they, we started looking for other churches. The reason, part of the reason we had moved to Visalia in the first place was um, they had been involved in planting a vineyard church there. And that had fallen through, but there was another one in town over that we had gone to for a while, and then the pastor was a pedophile, and that was the whole thing, but there was a new pastor, and my dad wanted to go back. So we went there for a little bit, and it just, none of it was like a good fit. And so my father's like praying about this, actively like looking for solutions, and his childhood, his college best friend, not his childhood best friend, his college best friend calls him up and is like, So, like, I've been stationed here in Richmond. My family's found this church. I can't believe how great it is. Like, I'm growing spiritually for the first time in years. Like, they challenge me on things. They make me think. It's so great. And almost everybody is homeschoolers. Mm. Ah. And my dad was like, say what? (laughs) And he was like, yeah, you should come and move out here. This is amazing. Like, you would love it. And my father's like, ha, ha, ha. And then this friend's like, no, really, I'll pay for your plane ticket. So my father's like, okay. And he goes out for like a week in December of um, 1999. So he's there for like a week um, visiting his best friend who, spoiler alert, later leaves this cult um, and comes out as gay and is no longer talking to my father but talks to me. Um, (laughs) I love it. It's so good. Um, but this guy like took him around, showed it, like introduced him to people. And my father like really connected with the, the, one of the associate pastors who was leading the worship team. My father's a musician. So he was like really looking for a place where he could like be appreciated and be part of the regular worship team set. And, and he, so he felt really excited about that. And he was like, they do this reformed theology thing. We've got to figure that out. I don't know how I feel about it, but like maybe it's fine. But they're also charismatic. And so, you know, we'll feel at home there because we'd always been very charismatic in our churches. My parents got saved in a Calvary chapel. Uh. Uh, I mean, they got saved in like Southern Baptist adjacent, but like they ended up together at a Calvary chapel and that was pretty formative. So this was all seen as like signs, right? Right. And so clearly, like, there's a place for my father in the worship team. Like, there's a pastor he really connects with, which had all chronically been, like, a difficulty for him. Like, everybody's homeschoolers. He had just been praying about this issue. Like, you know, this guy called him up out of the blue. Like, this obviously is a sign. So he comes home from this trip, and he puts up a map of Virginia on his bedroom wall and is like, we're moving there next year. And turns that into this whole Abrahamic quest, like, 
the promised land. No, he like he literally made that comparison. Oh my god. And he used it a lot during this whole time. And I was like, you know, before I was swearing, but like I would have been, oh fuck, I'm gonna lose all my friends. How do we do this? I've read a lot of books about what this is like. You move there and you have no friends and you're the weird person. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> like, I read those books. I've read those books. This does not end well. <laughs> um and so I was really unhappy with it, but like it was very much this like, God is calling us, we have to do it. And my mother was like pissed because her mom had just moved into a retirement home in Oakland and her sister was in Wisconsin and she was like, So I'm going to abandon my widowed mother mm. like and move across the country. And my father convinced her that yes, this was God's will, and she did it with great like consternation. She was so depressed for like two years afterwards, so depressed. But she did it because it was God's will, and these right. were signs. Yeah. And, you know, we get there, and they, because Sovereign Grace Ministries is was a cult, they love-bombed us. They brought, like, a couple, what were then called cell groups, but, like, Bible study groups, over to help us unload our truck. So we had like 60 people in our house unpacking us in one day. We had a like meal train for two weeks. We had like all of these things and they like took care of us and like had like parties to introduce us to people. And like my parents were like, obviously more signs. Right. <laughs> because Clearly. love bombing exactly is a sign. Is. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it had been like that. I mean, again, this charismatic, like, impulse. Like, when when you believe, one, that, like, God is like, intervened specifically in your life, and that's a big part of your salvation story, and when you get saved in a charismatic church environment and you get taught about, like, the, the gifts of the Spirit, it gives you this sense of, like, like purpose and specialness and you know, of course that to people who haven't like experienced like unconditional love or like steady recognition mm-hmm. feel that like feeds you so of course they were into it like of course like right. humans need this um if you don't get it from your family you're gonna look elsewhere and this is wh- where they found it um so this like majorly changed the course of my life in at many moments and like there were there were all these times when I'd get like encouraged to put out a fleece over trivial matters yeah um if you want to explain what putting out a fleece means please go for it Karen I am so far (laughs) gone from this world (laughs) so this is something that we also mentioned in our first season on episode 23 called Doubt, if you want to go check that out. But basically, it's like, it's a metaphor for, like, there was Gilead, I believe, is who it was, who, like, put out a wet, or a fleece, and I was like, okay, if this is wet, but the ground around it is dry, then that means God is saying, yes, I should do this thing. And he did Which that Which was, for like, like three to days. Le- be, like, the general leading Israel into battle. Right, yeah. 
And and so it and then he was like, okay, well this time if the grass is wet and the fleece is dry, then I'll know it's God saying. So you you kind of like so he did make it twice up. because he didn't believe it the first time, right? Right, even though he's, like, making this up. Like, he's just pulling this out of his ass. So, like, the whole putting out a fleece thing is you make up some kind of test that God is supposed to perform. And if it goes, it's basically, like, heads or tails, but with God. Right. But, so. and then, like, I love how, like, this, like, directly gets contradicted at another point in the Bible. And I right. forget if it's Old or New Testament, but, like, the whole, like, don't test God thing. Right. Yeah, like, what, where, <laughs> how, how is that not that? Mm, you're not supposed to pay attention to that part. Okay. Don't pay attention anyway, to where it conflicts. Right, right, right. Contradictions don't exist because, you know, God never changes. Right. Anyway. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go back. No, 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 no. I'm enjoying this. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I, um, I think I was not as intensely invested in seeking signs as it sounds like your parents were like again Mm -hmm. things went like pretty well for my parents like they had plenty of money they had plenty of whatever so it was like easy to just be like yeah we're doing exactly what god wants us to like right right i don't recall a time when they were like it feels like god is telling us to do this you know um they were pretty classic um I would say they were pretty classic Romney Republicans. And by that, I mean Mitt Romney. <laughs> sort yeah, of... and I, you know, I think that's actually a good point. Like, there's a lot of class stuff that goes into this. Yeah. And we, we've talked about this before, probably not on the podcast, but just Kieran and me, you know, bitching, where people who end up leaving fundamentalism are usually the people who, like, actively experience the harm from it. Mm-hmm. And the people who don't leave it are often the people who are well enough off that they can, like, count, like offset the social discomforts or, or whatever. Like, they can perform the routine and people, like, suck up to them because they're wealthy or whatever. Because it's – you don't have to examine your decisions quite as closely when you don't have to examine your money very closely. Yeah. 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 I feel like, oh, there's this idea in the, the trans woman community, especially those of us who uh, transitioned after, say, 25, uh, when it's like you've started to build a life and you kind of have to blow that life up to come out and transition. And the idea is sort of like you start making preparations for the life you know you're going to need to lead without quite knowing what you're doing. A lot <laughs> of people have talked about this in terms of uh, Donald Trump. Uh, when he was elected, a friend of mine who she was in no way ready to even confront her transness immediately started like making plans to move to Canada. Just like she had a job opportunity there. She went after it really heavily. She was like, we're going to make this happen. And then she got the job. She moved to Canada. And once she got to Canada, she was like, I can come out as trans. And I wonder how often like the sign from God is you doing a thing you want to do already and just like looking for justification for it. I mean, obviously it is. I think that's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I I mean, I wasn't looking for a sign from God, but like when I came back from Peace Corps, like I had opportunities to go back abroad. I could very easily, like I didn't have an established life here. I could have just like applied for a Fulbright or like, you know, taking a job teaching in China or, or something. 
And I was like, you know what? My obligation is to be here because I know how to talk to the Christians who voted for Trump. Yeah. And not a lot of people can do that. So I'm going to stick around. Like, this is reparations for me in a way. Um, but I easily could have, like, found a sign from God in that and, like, anticipated these things. I think that's a that's a real common human impulse. Yeah, and I think um, that's a thing I think about a lot with, like, okay, so I feel an intense an overwhelming connection to something divine since coming out, since starting to take my estrogen, life-giving estrogen. Um, <laughs> I, uh, not for everyone, but for me. I was, I was going to say, I'm glad it works for you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, like some people don't, some people really don't like grape Kool-Aid and some of us love it. Um, right. But uh, when I started getting on estrogen, I felt this intense connection to something larger than myself, which I'm funneling through Christianity because that's how I grew up. That's what I understand. And I well, just... That's, that's your cultural context. That's my cultural context. So, like, I'm going back to the church. And, like... But, like, my mother also clearly feels this connection to something divine. And, like, it's clearly telling us very different things about how to live our lives and, like, what's right and what's sinful and what's not sinful and I guess, you know, it's so clear that so much of this is just like, in my own brain, I need a justification for this scary thing that I've done that has made my life better. But when I started the process, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen when I, well, you know, like, go ahead. as humans, we seek order. Mm -hmm. We want to find a pattern. And whatever we decide is the, like, the pattern that's going to do us the least harm, the pattern that's most familiar or the pattern that like resonates us with us the most is, or like is going to like keep us in our community mm -hmm. and not create trouble. Like that's what we gravitate towards yeah. because we're just animals of habit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. I, um, so yeah, I, I really struggle with like, okay, when I pray, because I still pray for usually when I'm trying to overcome anxiety, it's literally just like casting these things that I have no control over out into out onto someone who ostensibly does. I'm not sure that he's there, but I can be like, oh, here you go. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's letting your brain process a thing. But like when I pray and, you know, feel assured that I'm doing the right thing or when my mother prays and feels assured that she's doing the right thing and sort of like not leaving the door open to me as I am, but instead as the person she thinks I should be like, we both feel like God is telling us we're doing the right thing. And, <laughs> right. You know what it's, what it is is it's, yeah, our brains are like, yep, this is the right thing. You're doing the right thing because we can't com contemplate a world where you're not. That gives me a perfect segue into a story from college. Okay. Um, so there was before my ex-husband, uh, really, he before he and I really got serious, we had this, like, period where we were kind of, like, hanging out all the time and saying we were just friends, but, like, feeling out a relationship. because. But we really didn't want to, like, make it serious because both of us grew up in hardcore courtship culture and it would accelerate everything really intensely if we did. You get married immediately. Right. <laughs> and I was, like, a sophomore. So <laughs> it was, like, not yet... Um, so we were hardcore hanging out all the time and not saying we were a thing. 
and not admitting to ourselves or each other that we were. And I had this problem as a uh, quiverful daughter of a codependent mother and a narcissist father that I was that slightly nerdy girl who would listen to anyone talking about anything because she didn't know X about pop culture and could be educated. So I was the person that all of the sophomore boys went to for mansplaining sessions. And I genuinely thought it was interesting because I didn't know any of these things. (laughs) Right. And that's fine. Yeah. But that meant that I was not just like listening to their mansplaining, but I was also like, you like, <laughs> like an extremely good listener because of my upbringing. And so all of them felt like I liked them, mm-hmm. liked them, liked them. And so I, I had at some point like five guys kind of like circling and like <laughs> three or four of them were emailing my father behind my back. And I had no idea. And I had no idea that they liked me. And I was like distraught what I would find out. And my dad would be right. like, so how about this guy? He's been talking with me. And I've been like, what? And um, so one of these had gone through like the whole thing with my dad. And he and my dad were getting along really well. And they're emailing each other regularly. Again, behind my back. And I didn't find out for months. And, um, and he was just really quiet. And so I never like talked with him a lot we just hung out in the same group a lot and at some point he like started asking me to go on walks with him as you do at grove city college where like there's nothing to do in the middle of nowhere and we'd hang out but like there was a lot to talk about besides gossiping (laughs) or like talking about homework and neither of us were in similar majors there wasn't a lot of common ground he was a programmer i was english um anyway you sure you Wrapping don't want to check up. for semicolons? Look, I've learned enough <laughs> about programming through dating a lot of programmers <laughs> since then. <laughs> I'm good. Um, but this guy, it was just, he was sweet. And he, I felt comfortable around him. But eventually it got to this crux where he started getting really jealous that I was hanging out with my ex-husband all the time. Yeah. And so he, like, it's, like, his finals week. I had, like, a night final. And he was, like, I need to talk to you. And I was, like, I have this poetry final. And it was one of those, like, identify all the passages kind of finals. So I was, like, Uh. really cramming. And because it was an advanced class. And he was, like, okay, well, I'll meet you after that. So I, like, pulled an all-nighter, took one final, like, napped for an hour, went and took the night final, Got out of that being like convinced I was failing and but also really relieved it was done. I got an A. It's fine. Um, (laughs) But then I go to meet with this guy and he's like asking me like it's not he's like it's not fair. Like this guy that you're hanging out with all the time hasn't even talked to your dad and I've been talking to your dad and all this stuff. He's just like really worked up. And then he like and I'm just sitting here being like, wow, I have to calm down an angry man. Great. Um, and like being like, this is not attractive. (laughs) Like I wasn't even aware that that was what I was thinking, but that was what I was feeling. And then he's like, I've been praying about this for a a year, six months, something long. And God keeps telling me that we're supposed to be together. 
and I was like, aha. <laughs> and I was like, I'm so sorry. I've been praying about this too. And God hasn't told me anything of the sort. So <laughs> maybe ask him to talk to me about it. And that's how I ended the conversation. <laughs> and I was an asshole, but also like good, good job. It was like such a it was such a cut and dried moment of like, this man is really angry and I am in a confined space with him and I need to leave and not be here because I'm so overwhelmed. And how do I shut him up? And I just use what I had. Yeah. And and it's like those kind of situations where like you force what you want onto this pattern that you've assumed is the way the world works. You use it to your advantage and it comes into, you know, crosshairs with each other people's perceptions of how things should be or what they want. Yeah. It's weird how that works and how no one's idea of what God is saying is like necessarily the same thing or compatible with other people's also hearing from God. Right. We're, <laughs> and like the idea is, oh, everyone else is being misled by Satan, you know, but like, right. No, like, like just logistically, that seems like a really difficult thing for Satan to do. Like, just I'm like sorry. A lot have, of work. You, have you read the screw tape letters? Yeah. Yeah. Well, true. They, put, true. they put work into that. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I, I was sitting here, like, as you were telling that story, even I was just like nodding very emphatically. And I just was like, oh, this is how I used to feel in church. Like when I was a little kid and people would be like, the story I always tell is, and, uh, I may be jumping ahead to something else that we were going to talk about, but the story I always tell is I, there was, uh, the local newscaster in where I grew up. Um, he was a big in evangelical circles and he would go around to churches and like like just show up there and he'd you know people would be like oh it's so starstruck and he would come up and you know do a just a couple a little just a few minutes talking from the pulpit and he wasn't like a pastor or anything it was just like him cashing in on his local celebrity local celebrity right. Yeah. Right. and uh he came to my church and <clears throat> somebody was speaking in tongues and he interpreted what they were saying. And it was like about... <laughs> oh, no. It was like oh. about how God's saying, I'm a lion, blah, blah, blah. And we were all like, oh, wow, wonderful, perfect. And then a few months later, I went to... Or not even a few months. You know, it was like a half year to a year later. I went to like this big tent revival meeting uh, that mm -hmm. was a get gathering of like all these local non-denominational churches. And the newscaster was there. And somebody spoke in tongues. And he said the exact same thing. And like, <laughs> I was seven or eight and I just was like, oh, this is a spiel. This guy's not on the level. He's not actually getting this message from God, but like. He doesn't actually have the gift of interpretation. Yeah. Amazing. He's just like, he's saying a thing that he knows is going to get him noticed. And like, yeah, it's, there's, there's this fine line between a genuine message from the divine, whatever form that would take. And a thing that just makes you feel better about a thing you're already going to do. And yeah. Yes. I mean, the, like, again, this is teasing me off into another story. I, I, this is what my baptism felt like. Um, and this is what gave me salvation anxiety for like my entire adolescence when I was like, I guess it was eight, seven or eight when I got baptized. And the, it was like in some, somebody's pool from the church and there were a bunch of us getting baptized and of course, this is an evangelical, charismatic church. So everybody else comes up from the water. Mm. 
sobbing and speaking in tongues and being so emotional. And uh. I just kind of look around and was like, I got water up my nose. Like, I didn't like, yeah. I was just not, I don't feel anything except for like, I need to blow my nose. And I just kind of like look at my father who baptized me and like kind of laugh nervously. And he was like, how do you feel? And I was like, I have to make up something now. Great. And I did. And people like were congratulating me about how moved I seemed all day. And I was just like, well, this is all fake. Yeah. And I don't know what to do with that. Maybe I'm the problem. And it was just such a like this environment like coerces you into playing along with things that you don't necessarily believe in. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's weird. Yeah, and like I knew I knew the thing that I was being told to believe in, I didn't believe in for most of my childhood. But mm-hmm. I thought the fault was in me, not in yep. the thing I was being taught to believe in, which is a common theme yeah. that comes up on this show, on, on other shows where people talk about this kind of thing and, and like sort of working their way through the trauma of being raised in this fashion. But yeah, I, I it took me legitimately, it took me to my 30s to realize the problem was not with me. The problem was with mm-hmm. that church. I spent most mm-hmm. of my 20s being like, I'm going to hell and that's just it. And I, I can't figure out a way to not go to hell. And now, like, I mean, I'm probably going to hell, but for entirely different reasons. Right, so. right. <laughs> Join the club. Yeah. I really like all the people who I think are probably going to hell, so I'm okay with it. Yeah. I mean, the television program, The Good Place, makes it look like we're going to, like, meet our best friends there, so cool. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for, I'm here for that experiment with all the Froyo. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <sighs> I think the other thing that Kieran wanted to talk about is a is a good again a good segue. I need to get more original with my transitions. Would you um, say would you say <laughs> it was a good segue? Yes. Great. I, um, a good segue from um, the good place to the end times. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Because one of the things that we're seeing with Trump's like. Uh, collaboration with evangelical leaders is a lot of these moments where like he and he is going along with them actively directing him in the path of fulfilling X end times prophecy as interpreted by the American evangelical church. Yeah. Yeah. Like we've talked about this before, but moving the, the embassy to Jerusalem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like yep. specific little things like, you know, the fires in Australia, like yeah. coincides with end times prophecy, like the, you know, increase in like weird hurricane related events and there will be and wars there, and rumors, and rumors of, wars, of wars, which yeah. like, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. what was January even? Uh, it's just all of this stuff that he's doing that he is clearly having evangelical yes men around him encouraging because they are looking for signs from God. And like, he's like, well, I'm pissed about this thing. This is what I'm going to do about it. And they're like, oh, yes. Yes. Yes, This this fulfills the the prophecy. This is in Revelation. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like it also like climate change, right? 
that whole thing, the reason evangelicals don't want to, don't care about stopping it is because that's what, like, revolution, revolution, (laughs) (laughs) wrong thing. Revelation is like, oh, the entire planet is on fire. And so everyone from my childhood is like, oh, hey, look, the planet's on fire. That means the tribulation is coming. And then, like, it's really just a question of are you pre-trib or post-trib as to when the rapture is going to happen. Right, right, right. That's a discussion. Or a millennial. Right. Um, Well, yeah. It really, like, it eliminates your need to have any political involvement in the world, which is another thing that comes up a lot in X evangelical circles but like mm-hmm. yeah like if the world is on fire because the end times are coming you have no responsibility to make the world stop being on fire because that's what god yeah. wants god wants that's the god's world, plan yeah god wants the world to be on fire it's god's plan that we not get involved in anything except maybe trying to like work do whatever we can to stop abortion because we, that's like the most right. important thing so. right but all well, the other suffering is preordained yeah. and to god's glory because they're all fucking pagans and right you know who cares we need to get those babies born so they can suffer right it's important it's important that they experience this that way they fully appreciate what happens when jesus comes back on the white horse and i just think about the last battle so much and like the racism that was in that book and how that is like clearly clearly like affecting uh how all of these evangelicals are treating their interpretations of revelation it's the exact same thing where it's Mm -hmm. like this like you know anti-muslim sentiment this islamophobia this like we're scared of brown people in you know quote unquote developing countries Mm -hmm. um and so if they you know die under these things like i mean it's like what people were talking about during the aids crisis where it was like this is god's punishment Oh, yeah. Or their sins. Like, if it was in New York in the 80s, it was because they were gay. And if it was in Africa, it was because they were having premarital sex. Yeah. Right. And it was justified. Like, it's it creates this system where you can just opt out of compassion. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's almost like that's the whole thing it's designed to do. Yeah. Hmm. It's, I wonder why. Yeah. It's creating a world that it's a creating a world that makes that attempts to be as okay with the status quo as possible when like well also simultaneously thinking that you're the most important thing to happen to the universe right uh-huh yeah i mean i i that's the the one thing that i haven't entirely let go is that i am the most important thing that has ever happened to the universe so (laughs) so i i we i don't think we've talked about this before but kieran have you ever gotten prophesied over yes has that fucked you up Yes. Okay. Why don't you tell tell about that and then I'll tell about mine. Yeah. I'm like, I don't even remember what the prophecy was. I just remember being terrified because <laughs> there was just like this random nosy church lady who like followed me around church was like, I have a word from the Lord. And she put her hands on me and was like, something, you're going to do something, 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 something. And I was just like. Who Get are your hands you? off me, lady. <laughs> and why Why are you telling me these things? And then she was like, God told me to tell you this. And I was like, okay. And like that followed me for years. And I was like, am I doing the thing right that I was told to do that was like very vague and just sort of like going to a psychic? I was like, you're going to do great things. And God is 
great plans for you and something, nothing like really specific. So right, right. You know, but yeah, and I just like that's such a weird weight to carry because when you're approached like that in in a church and it by people who are like, I have a word of prophecy from you, and it's either like a fortune telling thing or it's like a disguised criticism. Well, and if you've been like, brought up like listening to stories about King David or Saul and Samuel, like or Esther, like it suddenly feels like very critical and you have to right. take it seriously. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's God who's talking to you through this person. It's not just a nosy church. And he doesn't do that nosy. to just anybody. Right. Like it's clearly this is important for you to know you have to stop fidgeting in your seat. This does not glorify God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Emily, did you ever have one of those experiences? Yes, when I was uh, 16 or 17. So when I was a teenager, before – what the thing that really kind of like screwed my life up was figuring out I was trans, which I did when I was 22. When I was a teenager, I was very much myself. I was living essentially the life of a typical uh, teenage girl – but since I was primarily attracted to women, it didn't really, like, create problems for me. Like, <laughs> yeah. nobody was reading me as gay. Like, people were like, you have mm-hmm. some really, like, you are you are a suspiciously feminine person, but you like girls, so it's fine. Um, yep. <laughs> because they had, like, no concept of, like, what that could mean other than, I don't know, gay. So <clears throat> All right. I went to this family reunion, an extended reunion of all of my mom's various relatives And I like was, I don't know, I was the bell of the ball. Like I did this thing where I learned the names of everyone who was there, which was like over a hundred people. And then at the, um, at the, the final banquet, I like said the names of everyone and everyone was so impressed. Wow. And then on the last day that I was there, this woman went up to my mom and was like, I just need to tell you that God has told me that he has an amazing plan for your son and your son is going to just like set the world on fire with his Christianity, blah, blah, blah. And like, isn't that always the phrase, set the world on fire? And like, it was clear that just like, she was just responding to like, I was a very personable child and like, I was mature for my years and like really kind of funny and, and, and precocious. And Mm -hmm. like, that was what she was responding to. And like, but like, for quite a few years, I was like, okay, yeah, I got to do the thing that's going to be the part of God's plan for me. And um, it turns out that God's plan for me was becoming an inc- becoming a very public trans woman. So right. here we are. As you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so mine, I actually remember as well. And apparently there was an earlier one that happened when I was like an infant um, and what's weird is my father was present for both of these. And like when he heard the second one, he was like, that was the exact same as the one that was prophesied over you when you were an infant. This is weird. Um, it's a sign. It's a sign. So <laughs> I was, you're going to get a sneak peek into how homeschool graduations were kids. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we were at our like only planning meeting Maybe we had two, but it was the last one for the homeschool graduation for Richmond, which in like the Richmond homeschool community, there were a couple of ways you could do it. You could graduate with the like, statewide homeschool convention, which was like 
maybe that was like hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could create organize your own and like pretend like it was the normal school graduation. Or you could just like have a graduation party at your home. Right. And your parents would like print out a diploma like five minutes before everybody arrived and be like, yay, we did it. Um, so what I chose was the middle option. And so it was like, I think it was like 60 grads together. Um, and we, you know, rented out a church and we like went through all the ropes of like the things that our public school parents told us were necessary for a graduation. So we like had this meeting and this was what this meeting was for. We were nominating a valedictorian, which is like clearly how that works. But when you're homeschooled, all of us had four O's. So (laughs) we can't use the GPA. No. Uh, So we, um, we're all the top of our class and the class cloud. Right. Individually, we are all the top of our class. So we have to just like self nominate and then self vote. Yeah. So we all picked the, the lovely a friend of mine, he was uh, a national debate champ. And we were like, all of us feel nervous speaking in public, but she doesn't. This is yeah. fine. Yeah. And she did a great job. <laughs> but my French teacher was one of the, she's also a speech and debate coach, kind of big in Richmond homeschool circles, was there for that meeting because she was helping organize it. And she had a house guest who was this missionary to France who was home on furlough and she like had him talk before the meeting for some reason like to give him an excuse to write it off for work or something I don't know Uh um but he like talked about like casting out demons in French churches and all sorts of crap it was it was wild he was he was like yeah there was this one person who like we tried to like exercise her and she like got pinned to the ceiling for five hours and then we finally got her down it was like lots of stuff loaded he was way more evangelical than or charismatic than anyone i'd ever met and the meeting's ending and like i'm waiting for my dad to pick me up and she's lingering and my dad shows up and then we're like the last people there and he's like hey i want to talk to you and we hadn't talked to each other besides like a little bit of casual Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for being here. And he's like, I have a prophecy for you. Of course. Sure. <laughs> sure. And my French teacher and my father are like, oh, yes, do you <laughs> tell. Um, and he just like goes on and on about how like God's called me to lead a big change where I'm going to like heal things in the church and reform things in the church, problems that have existed for centuries. And... No it's pressure. going to be really lonely and people are not going to like me, but it's going to succeed in the end. So don't give up. And, you know, it's always lonely to be at the top and like right. all these yeah, things yeah. like that. And, and I was just like, I hate being alone. This sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so my father was like, wow, that's the same as what got prophesied over you when you were a baby. And I was like, cool, let's go. Uh, so that's like you know been one of those things where it you confirmation bias you make these choices where it's like okay so do do i want to blog about the fact that i'm leaving a cult and i've finally decided that it's a cult and like talk about my experiences well because of this prophecy it says i'm supposed to do that so i'm gonna do it right (laughs) like i wanted to anyway but the prophecy like 
was like the tipping point in that decision. <laughs> and I've, you know, all these like years I've been like, this guy's a perf, but also, yeah, like it's lonely. <laughs> and yep. maybe that makes sense. But also, isn't that like what your parents taught you with like the whole opposition means it's God's will? Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I'm just remembering a uh, woman I grew up with. She was like exactly my age in that evangelical church. Of course, we drifted apart from each other after, um, <clears throat> after I left that church, but I am remembering that she, a, a, someone who was like 20 years older than her when she was 17 came to her parents and was like, I've really heard from God that I need to be dating your daughter. And like, Oh, uh, that's the thing. And a couple of years later they were married when she was 19 and he was 39, 40, somewhere in there. Oh, God. I love it when pedophiles use this stuff. And, and like, I can't, I haven't talked to her, you know, in probably 30 years. I can't, not 30, 25 years. I can't possibly tell you how she felt about this, if she's still married to that person, anything like that. But like, everyone in town was like, this seems sketch, but apparently it's okay because God said so. And just right. like, yep. whoa, what yep. is that? Well, I mean, this all goes into like why these leaders end up having so much power. If like, if they're anything thinking anything along the lines of the shepherding movement, like they have a, a closer, like direct line into God's will. Mm -hmm. So maybe the thing that they're asking the church to do is a little weird. And like, maybe they're like dipping into the coffers too much for their personal benefit. And yeah, maybe like the way they hang out with kids is a little sketch or whatever it is. But God chose them, right? But God so... chose them. There was a sign. So yeah. we're going to look the other way. And I think yeah. a whole lot gets swept under the rug just because of that mindset. I feel like that's why there's so much going on behind closed doors in churches. Because you can't possibly, like, think that someone who presents themselves as someone who, like, speaks and listens to God more directly than you do could be doing <laughs> anything other than what God wants. Definitely couldn't possibly be, like, self-serving or, like abusive or anything like that and well, if you question is, it you're questioning is, god so this is what directly feeds our like general suspicion of authority and organized systems yeah yeah it's true at large yeah ah uh, yeah it's a thing it's it's and it's intense and it it really takes a lot of work to unpack this piece of the charismatic and evangelical experience and like start taking responsibility for your decisions because there's a whole lot of these things where like cool god led you you had a sign you do the thing and then it blows up in your face yeah and so you're yeah. suddenly like what was i supposed to learn from that because like this was god's plan right yeah it gets yeah. rough it's been a lot of my therapy over the last year is like finding those bits in like weird places that I didn't expect them to be and haven't addressed yet and just being like, oh, cool. Glad to see that's still a factor. Oh, awesome. You're here now too. Great. That's um, totally the thing that I wanted to work on. So many landmines that just oh. haven't been tripped on yet. Yeah. So there's a philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer um, and he wrote a piece about how if you look back at your life on your deathbed, it will have, he wrote an essay, I should say. He wrote an essay about how if you look back on your life on your deathbed, 
in, I think he wrote this in like the 17th, 18th century, you will look at everything and if it was a novel, like you will see all the things that led to you meeting your spouse or you will see all Mm -hmm. the things that led to you getting your job or whatever. And like, I feel that hand of fate in my own life now in thinking about the ways that I came to accept that I was trans and like the ways that I'm being tugged and guided towards certain things. But one of the things that's been fascinating to me is the degree to which I accepted that I was tugging and guiding myself, that I thought of Emily as a person living in the back of my brain and telling me what to do and like pushing Mm -hmm. me on the right path. And I really firmly believe that was true. Like a lot of things that happened in my life make sense mostly if you're like, oh, Emily knew what my former name, you know, didn't and could sort of steer things in the right direction. And like, that's how we talk about guidance from God. That's how we talk about guidance from the Holy Spirit in the evangelical church. It's just like, it's just like a form of self-help that's become toxic and demented. And like, if we can detach from that, maybe we can uh, come up with a better way to interpret that tiny inner voice that might be God or it might just be us telling us something we already know and we already know but are trying to deny. Yeah. That actually reminds me, sorry, I keep doing this, of another story where <laughs> when my husband had first left me and like made it clear that he, when he came back from this trip, he didn't want to live with me and we had to figure it out in this like week-long period. I was so angry at him and was like, I don't want to make this work, but clearly that's like sinful desire. Like this is like, I was like so burned out. I was so burned out. There's no, there's no expressing how burned out I was. Um, Things were bad. And I was, had up till that point accepted that like suffering, you know, induces holiness and it's going to get better. And, and it was like, oh, okay, maybe this is not going to get better. And I called my, a friend of my mom, who was the only Christian person I knew at that point who I thought would have a, maybe not a negative view of divorce. And I was like telling her what was going on. And I was like, what should I do? I don't know what to do right now. Cause like God is against divorce and this is going to cost me my family. Yeah. And and eventually, like, it, it it cost me a lot of things, and that was one of them. Um, but she was like, look, you know, what would your 30-year-old self tell you about this? Because I was 23 at the time. And she was like, I think God can work through divorce to bring about good things. I don't think... God wants us to actively put ourselves in the way of suffering. Like, I don't think that's part of his plan for us. He wants good things for us. And I was like, oh, right. That's part of the Bible too. <laughs> that's <laughs> Forgot possible. about that part. Right. Forgot about that part. And, and she was like, what would your 30 year old self tell you? And without like hesitating, I was like, she would be like, leave. <laughs> I just knew it. I knew it. And I did. And here I am 30. And yep, yep, that was the right call. <laughs> like things were not easier because of it, but things would not have been better by like fighting to make it work longer. Yeah. Like, and, and that guided me for a lot of my, my twenties was just like, okay, but like, 
30-year-old me, would she regret this? Would she be enthusiastic about it? And that would be how I made that decision. And it was really helpful. Oh, boy. When I used to think about the people watching me on in, on TV in another universe, I just was like, they are so disappointed that you've set up this whole storyline where you're trans and you're not doing anything about it. Let's think about that a little bit. <laughs> they want the plot twist. Yeah, they want Beautiful. they want the story to start moving. And Stop like, baiting them already. Jeez. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then I finally gave in to their demands and it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. So Yeah, see, always, always, always follow what this imaginary audience wants. <laughs> my therapist we- likes to refer to this as um like the higher self so there's like you in the moment Uh in like experiencing whatever but there's like this part of you that is like when everything is good and right and aligned and you are at your most present and your most like safe and fulfilled feeling what is that version of you and so she she describes that as like the higher self and it's all in getting to this like place where you can kind of remove yourself out of the situation and be like okay in a perfect ideal if i were like exactly where i wanted to be what would i like what decision would i make for mm-hmm. this situation and that's been a helpful tool for me to like process some stuff there's like, a lot okay. of self-help systems that use something like this where it's yeah. like what would you do if you couldn't lose or like whatever yeah but it's nice to like find whichever one like works for you yes. to to fill in this gap so you like stop looking for supernatural significance and can start like actually living and taking some agency in, in your life. Yeah, like that's sort of been a huge thing for me that I've learned in therapy and and like that concept of of that source being like myself but myself at my fullest mm-hmm. instead of like some nebulous deity or something controlling my life now it's like oh well this is a decision i can make and, and also i can do like this that fuller choose. self is like a target you can be working towards. exactly yeah i love it yeah therapy is good kids if you learn nothing from this episode, therapy <laughs> is good. And like, it takes time and we've come a long, long, long way. And it's so nice to be constantly learning and growing. It, oh, gosh. It took me it took me nine years to come out to my therapist. And when I said, I think I'm a trans woman, I think I'd like to think about, I think I'd like to think about thinking about transitioning. He just kind of <laughs> looked at me and was like, I suspected you might be, but I didn't want to pry. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Which is so affirming. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. I had been like having gender feels at my therapist for like months. And then I was like, one day I was like, so I'm going to try testosterone. She was like, yeah, I figured. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Glorious, glorious tea. Yeah. Or as I call it, the cursed devil. Right. See, like I would happily exchange. Yeah. This is why we need modular bodies. I know. Why can't they just let me put my brain in some other body? That'd be fun. Yeah. Like, (laughs) honestly, that's the future I signed up for. I don't know what the fuck this is. Bodies as customizable Lego kits. We just have to, like, live, like, another 20 years, and then they're going to have the nanotech and where it's going to be great. I'm just yeah. gonna like, yeah, it's gonna be great. I'm just gonna be the please, re- write, please write that movie. Oh, of course. I'm just gonna actually, yeah. I do have a script about that. Uh, but okay, good. I'm just gonna be the Reese Witherspoon I've always been in my head. It's gonna be great. 
Yes, Amazing. correct. Beautiful. <laughs> so, Emily, what what would you like to plug? Oh, I'm going to plug you for what are your 52 million things. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to plug all the things. First of all, so whoever's out there working on nanotech, please hurry up. I would like to be. Please. I would like to be small and blonde. Thank you. Um, <laughs> second of all, you can read my writing at Vox.com. I'm on Twitter at Twitter.com slash TVOTI, and I link to everything there. Um, you can also listen to Arden. It's available on all major podcast uh, programs. It is a fake true crime show about a journalist and a detective, and they're both women, and they go searching for a missing Hollywood starlet, and they argue the whole time, which is clearly a sign that they're falling in love. Um, it's, oh, yes. It is very tropey and fun, and uh, season one is available, and we are working on season two now. You can back us on Indiegogo. That is also linked to on my Twitter, uh, I'm also the host of the Vox Media Podcast's Primetime, and I think you're interesting, both of which you can find on Podcatchers. I wrote, I co-wrote the book Monsters of the Week, the complete critical companion to the X-Files, which is in stores now. And I have all manner of other things I get up to that I link to on Twitter, which again is twitter.com slash TVOTI, twitter.com slash Tavoti. Yay! Beautiful. We made so it. many great things. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I was so happy to do this show with you two. I I really had a great time uh, talking about this. I again, I had that very intense feeling of like either really intense group therapy or like going to a Bible study where everyone's like, I just feel this conviction on my heart. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <sighs> well, if you nice. want to support, <laughs> what? Oh, it's just like the catharsis is nice. Yeah. Oh, yes. This is why we do this, really, honestly, mm-hmm. is it's catharsis and it's educational. Two birds with one stone. So um, if you want to fund our catharsis. Yes. We're on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Um, you can send us questions at kitchen table cult at gmail.com. As always, your support keeps us going. It helps us finally get through our backlog of transcripts we have two more up now um, on the transcripts page so that's awesome and thank you for listening to this episode about signs and why are even yeah i i'm glad we covered this i i really feel like this was a gaping hole in our backlog and i think this has been really fun yeah if you want to email us questions we had one for this episode that we neglected to answer but we'll talk about it next time and uh thank you as ever to dave for being our uh, sound editor putting this together afterwards and enabling us to do you know podcasting cross country and uh thank you to the band the heavens for letting us use their music from the album stenazo um for every episode And thank you for listening, as always. And we will see you, hopefully, next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.